1: You can put a product out into the world, you can collect money for that product, a one-time payment for that product, give up possession of the product, but still maintain some degree of control over how people use it. You can kind of attach strings.
2: Hi, and welcome to Radio Motherboard. This is Jason Kebler. And for this week, we're going to be talking to Aaron Perzanowski, who is a law professor at Case Western University, and Jason Schultz, who is a law professor at New York University. So two lawyers, very exciting. They are the authors of The End of Ownership which is a book about how we no longer own many of our things, thanks to things like end-user license agreements, digital rights management, copyright law, things of that nature. So things like Netflix, Amazon, ebooks, books etc. It's all very scary. And let's talk to them right now. Aaron Perzanowski and Jason Schultz. They are the authors of The End of Ownership, Personal Property in the Digital Economy. I first learned about this book at the e-reuse conference in Houston a few months back. It's kind of where a bunch of repair people gather to talk about how it's very hard to get parts for the iPhone and other computers. And turns out that this is partially related to the fact that it's unclear whether we even own our iPhones in many cases, or at least the software on it. Often, manufacturers use the Digital Millennium Copyright Act to lock down their devices as much as possible. And they use things like DRM. So we're gonna talk about how we've gotten into this situation where we don't own a lot of our things. And I think a good place to start is probably Netflix and Spotify. We went from an area where we own our DVDs and CDs and records to something where we're, we kind of have like a subscription service. So what, what made you guys want to originally write this book? Like how long have you been studying this area?
1: So you know Jason and I have been thinking about and writing about this kind of cluster of issues around consumer ownership for going on eight or nine years now, and we started out writing uh, primarily for a legal academic audience. We were writing in law reviews, uh, sort of you know long, dense, uh, full of lots of citations to case law. And we realized that this was an issue that was really important, not just to the legal community or the academic community, uh, but really to anybody who uses or interacts with technology. We think these are issues that really affect people on their day, in their day-to-day lives, often in ways that they, they don't really even notice. But when we talk about the book, Um, And the issues that we describe in it, you see this sort of light go on in people's eyes and they they recognize experiences from their own lives uh, that, that really relate directly to these issues.
2: So what's a common light bulb moment for people where they're like, oh, wait, I don't own my things.
0: There's so many of them that have come about and it's usually something that they have always been able to do with the things they bought. So, for instance, I was talking to someone who was trying to leave things in their will to their kids. And they're like, can I leave my ebooks to my kids? I can leave my other books. Or can I leave my iTunes music collection? You know, I can leave my vinyl collection. And it was these sort of questions that they never thought about before, but they were trying to figure out, you know, what was the situation? That really spurred for them, I think, this question. And the answer was, well, probably not. The way that these things are structured legal and technologically – You know, unless you get special permission from Amazon or Apple or something, you're going to be out of luck.
2: Right. And these are for the things that we, in theory, buy where you go to Amazon and you click buy now. A rational person would think that they own the book that they're buying for their Kindle, but they don't actually, correct?
1: Yeah, so that's right. Um, Typically, in the terms of use or the license agreements uh, that retailers attach to these transactions... You know, these are documents, of course, that no reasonable consumer uh, would ever read because they are thousands of words long uh, and they're full of kind of dense legalese language that most consumers uh, would, would struggle to understand.
2: I think you said the iTunes one is like longer than Macbeth or something. So
1: at, at the time we wrote the book, that was true. I think they may have trimmed it down uh, a bit, but not much, right? So yeah, these these things are incredibly long, right? Um but buried in that language, most of the time, is this notion that these are not, in fact, sales. You're not buying anything, despite that button and the language that they use to market these digital products. Uh, what you're doing, according to them, is a licensing. You are acquiring permission, and that permission is contingent on your uh, abiding by all of these limitations that they place on uh, the way that you use these things. So. You might expect that you can give them away in your will. You can't. Uh, you might expect that you can loan an, an ebook to a friend in the same way that you would loan a hardcover book to a friend. You can't. You might expect that you could resell your digital music collection in the same way you resell your CDs. Uh, there's actually litigation going on uh, right now over that particular question. So we see a kind of disruption of traditional... Uh, consumer expectations around what they can do with the things that they buy. Um, we talk in the book actually about a study that, that I conducted with um, my colleague, Chris Hufnagel, that actually gets, in, gets empirical evidence that consumers are in fact misled or deceived about the nature of these uh, sorts of, of, of digital purchases. They think when you buy something, that means you own it. Um, and, And I think that's a reasonable assumption for most consumers.
2: I think I got a little bit far ahead of myself here, but one of the most interesting parts of the book I thought was where you discuss what it means to own something, to be the owner of a thing. And that's not something that I ever think about. It's something that you just sort of intrinsically know. But what does it mean to own something?
0: Well, it means a lot of things. And that's kind of what we talk about in terms of the legal history, like, You know, ownership has served any number of different roles when consumers have needed it, right? One is, People can't take stuff away from you without you selling it to them or giving it away. You have a legal right to keep it for as long as you want. You have a legal right to throw it away. You have a legal right to sell it or donate it or destroy it or whatever. And now, I mean, with electronic and digital goods, you know, they might disappear in the middle of the night. I mean, a lot of people have found recently on music services like Apple iTunes that certain songs will disappear and no longer be available And these kind of things have changed because you no longer have that absolute right to keep it. The second thing I think that people have always depended on it for is the simplicity of it. You were pointing out that the terms of service keep getting longer and complicated, and I'm using them on one device versus another device, and I'm subscribing to this service, what happens? Well, if you bought a book from a bookstore, you own the book. You could travel with it anywhere you want in the world. You could loan it out to a friend. You could leave it in a youth hostel. Any of these things didn't require a complex legal document. You just did it. But now some of the music or movies or things that you buy only work in the United States. They don't work when you go to Australia or some other place. Or you can transfer them to one person, but not another. It depends on if they're a member of your family or not. So those complexities have also been a big thing that ownership basically just washed away. If you owned
2: it, you had it. So I want to talk a little bit about how we ended up getting here. Uh, You talk in the book about this idea of exhaustion and copyright, which means that Once a book is sold to you, like a hardcover book or a lot of other things too, you have the right to resell that book because the rights holder has exhausted their right to it. Um, But they have, they being copyright holders, have managed to circumvent this somehow uh, using contract law. So how did the end user licensing agreement come into wide use and what is a EULA?
1: So this is this is a great question and it gets to one of the really fundamental problems here in, in what we describe as kind of the erosion of ownership. So you're right. Exhaustion is this basic principle in intellectual property law, copyright and patent and trademark as well that says once you sell a product uh, to a consumer – Your rights as the copyright holder or the patent holder uh, are limited and in some instances come to an end. They are exhausted in the sense that you can no longer exert control over how people use the product or how people uh, alienate, resell, give away that product. And that's been uh, a kind of stumbling block for copyright holders for a long time, going back to... Uh, The late 19th uh, century, early 20th century, we have cases of booksellers who are trying to impose restrictions on what you can do with a book after it's been sold. Those efforts were unsuccessful. Uh, The same thing happened in the record industry when used CDs became uh, a big part of the market. Record labels tried to, to kind of stamp that out. Same thing when VHS hit the market um, and courts were pretty consistent in maintaining the idea that owners of copies uh, had rights that we associate with, uh, with personal property. What changed in part um, has to do with the introduction of computer software into the copyright universe. Um, starting in 1980, uh, when we got official protection for uh, software through copyright, and even before then, uh, we started to see the software industry relying on license agreements, uh, in part because they didn't have copyright or patent protection uh, early in, uh, in the, in the uh, uh, market for computer software, So what we saw was the the effort to create a kind of contractual right that could prevent uses that they objected to. And one way of of maintaining those rights was to insist that software products were not sold but rather licensed. Um, And we've started to see courts uh, over time embrace that idea that you can put a product out into the world, you can collect money for that product, a a one-time payment for that product, give up possession of the product, but still maintain some degree of control over how people use it. You can kind of attach strings to that purchase. And that all really started in the software space. Uh, And we're starting to see it spread throughout the economy for two reasons. One, because uh, other kinds of copyrighted works are starting to look more and more like software they are digital they are distributed digitally in some instances incorporate some of the sort of uh, functionality of software and then on the other hand we 're seeing software make its way into places it never was before. so it used to be you know the software market was kind of coextensive with the personal computer market. Uh, at least from the perspective of consumers, and now, of course, software is in everything. it's in our phones, uh, it's in uh, our watches, it's in our kitchen appliances. You know uh, if, if you go out and you know uh, buy one of these uh, smart mattresses, there's software in your bed. Uh, <laughs> software is all over the place, right? So that means that the implications here are a lot broader than courts initially thought.
2: I think people are used to using iTunes and Spotify and Netflix to get a lot of their media. And they sort of, maybe not everyone, but digitally savvy people sort of understand, okay, I don't necessarily own these things, but they're really convenient. I can buy something on Amazon and have it on my Kindle in 10 seconds versus driving to the store. And maybe the bookstore has it. Maybe the bookstore doesn't have the book that I want. So why should anyone care about this? Like, this is really convenient. Why bother owning things when you can just buy them real quick and and have them in two seconds. One of the things that I think is important is that
0: we're seeing all the Internet of Things and kind of smart cars and every other industry see that they can kind of trick consumers a bit. So you may not realize it up front what's going on, but down the road, fine, it's a if it's a song or a book, those are relatively low cost, uh, items and you can kind of shift and buy other kinds of music and things like that. But what about your car? What about your smart home? What about the pacemaker that's in your chest that's keeping you alive? We, in the book, we write about a number of different kinds of things that consumers buy, which we don't quite have such a casual attitude with that you might want to find out more about before you purchase them. And these companies don't want to tell you because they get a anti-competitive advantage, right? They can keep you from fixing them or modifying them, right? So let's say you get your car and it's a smart car and you want to like put in some kind of new stereo system or you want to put your own tires on it. Well, what if you can't do that? What if you can't even repair it unless you go to the authorized dealer? So John Deere now makes smart tractors and smart combine harvesters, and they actually insist on legally uh, asserting that farmers no longer own their tractor, that they're merely given a implied lifetime license to ride them, and that they can't repair them. They have to follow the rules of John Deere. So this has been a big shift for consumers away from kind of, you know, Easy, low cost kinds of things like music and movies, and more to kind of the everyday items that we use. And they're not being upfront about this. They're definitely trying to hide all these buried in the terms of service, and they're trying to use the technology to lock us out of our own devices and our
2: own homes. Yeah, I want to talk about the idea that we've taken ownership or this lack of ownership from the digital to the physical. Like you mentioned John Deere, but I think one of the most egregious cases is the Keurig coffee machine. So can you guys run us through what happened with
1: Keurig? So this is this is such a, a great and kind of uh, bizarre sci-fi sounding story, but it's kind of the reality that we live in now. So Keurig uh, makes uh, these sort of ubiquitous uh, coffee makers, right? If you've ever stayed in a hotel in the last five years, uh, there's been one in your room. Um, and the way they work is they sell these sort of pre-portioned, single-serving coffee pods. You pop one of these pods in the machine, you press one button, and it spits out a cup of coffee. But Keurig, like lots of other companies, like uh, you know people who make razor blades, like people who make uh, printers, realize that the money was not in selling the sort of durable good, the coffee maker itself. The money was in selling uh, the – Uh, uh, the reusable or the consumable portion of the product. So you don't make money selling razor handles. You make money selling razor blades. You don't make money selling printers. You make money selling ink. And the same is true here. You make the money off of the coffee pods. Um, And what they were finding was that there were competitors who were selling coffee pods that were compatible with their machines And they weren't getting a cut of those sales. So they put out a new version of their coffee maker that has a little bit of uh, optical scanning technology built into it. And it scans the coffee pod for a kind of unique symbol or code uh, that Keurig puts on its own coffee pods and those that it licenses – And in the absence of that code, if it scans the top of the the pod and doesn't see the code, a message pops up on the screen of your coffee pod that says, oops, uh, and it literally uses the word oops. um, This coffee uh, isn't authorized. Please buy um, licensed Keurig brand coffee. So you have a coffee machine, a, a very simple piece of technology that you bought, that you own, that is perhaps in your home that is literally refusing to take your orders right it 's taking orders from someone else, from the manufacturer it 's not serving your interest it 's serving its interests, and you know there there are plenty of other examples uh, along these lines of machines that don 't do what we tell them to do, they do what the manufacturer tells them to do in order to uh, serve the manufacturer's financial interests.
2: Right. One that just came out was, I I think yesterday, the FCC announced that Vizio, the smart TV company, or just a TV company that sells smart TVs, had been watching its users' uh, viewing habits and then selling those to advertisers. And I think we're sort of used to Facebook and Google following us around the internet and using our browsing habits to make money off of us, but... Here we have a TV, something that we paid for and in theory own and should, you know, maybe serve us. You have uh, Vizio double dipping here and taking money from you when you buy it and then also selling your data on the other end. You own the TV, but the TV is serving someone else. Is that fair to say.
0: Yeah, there's there's sort of two issues that are combined with the Vizio example. And also, we've seen this with Barbie dolls. We actually just recently saw this with a pacemaker, where the cops who were suspecting someone of arson actually subpoenaed the logs from his pacemaker to see what his heart rate was during the fire. So what is happening is that our things that we own, or things that we think we own at least, that we buy are actually being turned into kind of surveillance devices to surveil us. And none of this is really being disclosed to us. All of this is happening kind of inside the device in ways that we can't even see if we open it up. Because if you open it up, then you violate the terms of service and potentially copyright law to kind of go digging around and saying, hey, what's going on in this device that I bought, if you're even skilled to do that. So it's this kind of combination of these things that we own are being turned into spy devices. But then also that the fact that they could be used against us isn't even
1: Get started today at plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash loss.
0: It's only later we find out they betrayed us.
2: I want to talk about one more example before we talk about maybe what we can do to take back our things. Monsanto and their seeds. They patented Roundup-ready seeds for quite a while. It was basically crops that were able to resist Roundup and they were sold for one season only and farmers were prohibited from saving any seeds and using them the next year. What happened with these seeds?
0: This is one of those sci-fi stories that sounds bizarre, but then it turns out to be true. So Monsanto created a very harsh pesticide that destroyed sort of all living things in its wake, and then uh, turned around and decided to double down on its profits by selling special engineered seeds that could resist its scorched earth pesticide, and they called them Roundup Ready seeds, Roundup Ready being the pesticide, and these being the seeds that could resist and grow in the wake of the chemical onslaught. And You know, on some level, there's an appeal to this because you don't have to worry so much about pests getting into your crops. Farmers can grow, and the only thing that will grow are the seeds into the plants that make the product they sell. But what happened was that farmers who would buy these seeds would do what they've always done, which is to store them for the next year. So the the plant grows, you get the crop, and then you take the seeds from the plant and you store them over the winter and then you replant them. This is something they've done for hundreds of years. What they didn't expect was Monsanto to sue them for patent infringement because they did this. They thought they had bought the seeds and they would do what they always did with them. That was kind of, again, the thing about ownership is you buy it, you get to sort of use that particular thing The way you want to use it. You don't have to get approval from anyone. And what they said is, oh, but it's not the same thing. Because the seed came from the plant, it's a new seed. It's not the one you bought from us. You were licensed to use the seed you bought from us. So you were like illegally copying the seeds almost. You're illegally growing them according to the laws of nature, yeah. And kind of, you know, the physics of the earth. But yes, that is patent infringement. And they were very clever. The lawyers from Monsanto called them self-replicating inventions. Which sounds like a robot future, but it is actually how they describe the seeds and said that because these are self-replicating inventions, you can only use the particular seed we give you. You can't use any seeds that grow out of it. And so they brought this case and they successfully won at least one of these cases at the Supreme Court which completely rewrote the rules of ownership of any kind of seeds or biological materials used on farms.
2: Right. Yes, that's one of the most dystopian things I've ever heard and it's scary. So I want to talk about uh, like what can we do if we want to own our things? Like is there anything that I a smart consumer can do or is it something that's going to require congressional intervention here?
1: I think it depends on what things we're talking about. So for media purchases, at least right now, consumers still have a fair degree of choice in the marketplace. If you want to really own your music, you might have to sacrifice the convenience of immediately downloading an album from Amazon and instead order the vinyl version from Amazon and have it delivered in two days. Uh, you know, that's, that's a question of uh, your preferences between immediacy and ownership. And, you know, even speaking from personal experience, um, it's important to have that choice. You know, we're pretty strong advocates for the idea that ownership plays an important role in our society, but, you know, Jason and I both are people with Netflix accounts, right? We're not um, retreating to some um, you know, long gone era of analog only, but depending on context and depending on preferences, uh, we can make choices that, that secure those rights to a greater or lesser degree. When it comes to software-enabled and uh, you know network-enabled smart devices, I think consumers are in uh, a much worse position um, because many of the kinds of devices that we want to buy today are necessarily encumbered by software. Uh, and software leads to these problems of treating something as licensed rather than owned. I think there, the reforms uh, are much more likely to come from the legal system itself. So one avenue for reform uh, is litigation. There are cases ongoing. I mentioned uh, the appeal in the uh, Capital Records versus Redigi case, which is a case about Uh, a resale marketplace for digital media. That case is ongoing. Uh, The Supreme Court, this term, uh, actually in March, they're going to be hearing arguments uh, in a case involving Lexmark, the printer company uh, who asserts uh, its uh, patent as a way of uh, preventing consumers from refilling um, expired ink cartridges for their printers uh, there's a, the question in that case is whether or not uh, a patent holder gets to attach those kinds of limitations on a product that they have sold uh, to consumers. So we might see the courts take these issues up. Uh, there's also legislation that has been proposed in recent years uh, to address some of these issues. So there's a uh, there's a there's a bill uh, that has been introduced in the last couple of Congress congresses by. Um, uh, Representative Blake Farenthold uh, cleverly called the Yoda Act, which is the "You Own uh, You Own Devices Act," uh, which would clarify that um, consumers do, in fact, have an ownership interest in the software embedded in the hardware that they buy. So, you know, there are some uh, solutions to the most egregious of these problems. A more ambitious solution would be an overhaul of Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is what gives copyright holders this power um, uh, over uh, the devices uh, that uh, that I- that uh, embed this software. So there are some some avenues here, but they all, I think, really require consumers to be much more aware, much more informed and to exert pressure either through the marketplace or uh, through the, the legislative process to see anything really change.
2: Can I, as a consumer, negotiate my own end user license agreement with Apple or John Deere or Ferrari? You can't,
0: you're not really going to be able to negotiate the end user license agreement. But I think there are two things that consumers can do pretty much as much as you want and as often as you want. One is ask questions. So rather than trying to negotiate, the EuLA we've actually heard good stories about going on the kind of forums or the you know comment sections for comment products on Amazon and things and starting to really press on these things and when the manufacturer responds. With, like, this horrible draconian insistence that they get to decide, it's actually quite embarrassing, and sometimes they even pull back from it. So, like, for instance, with the Hello Barbie that has Wi-Fi enabled and audio recording where it sends, you know, it records your kids and sends that back to Barbie Central for them to, like... Train up their artificial intelligence or whatever they're doing back there. That when that came out, they were, Mattel was extremely embarrassed and had to kind of respond and had to kind of like promise to do a better job. So I think asking questions and complaining loudly are probably a bit more effective than trying to negotiate the legal agreement.
2: Yeah, I'll say that there is wide interest for this idea that, or rather, there's wide interest in shaming companies that aren't respectful with the way that they treat their customers, whether it's with regard to repair or ownership. I know that anytime I write about the right to repair, which we'll get into more on another podcast probably, but it's a very adjacent topic, people will go crazy for it. Like There's several bills right now in five states that would... Codify the right to repair, which is a DMCA issue in many cases, but it's also a parts access issue and an authorized repair person issue. People go crazy for those stories, and people get really upset when they learn that they aren't able to repair their things or they're not allowed to modify or jailbreak a phone or that the warranty on their devices is void if they open it up. So I think that there is a wide appetite for these sorts of stories and to push back against companies. I think the big question is what can we do besides shame them and make lawmakers know that people are upset? I think if legislation can get passed on right to repair, it'll be a huge win because it will signal that lawmakers, even on a state level, are starting to recognize some of these more advanced and complicated digital Legal questions, I guess, because a lot of this stuff is complicated, and a lot of legislators are kind of old. Um, do you think? Uh, do you think that this is something that the average lawmaker knows about?
1: Absolutely not. And I think it's it's incumbent upon all of us as users of technology, as people who understand how these products work and the kinds of restrictions they're imposing, uh, to do everything we can. Uh, to to spread information and awareness of these issues, I, I think you're absolutely right that in isolated instances, um, consumers have had some success in pushing back against the most abusive of, of these practices. The example that comes to mind for me is the Revolve uh, Home Automation Hub that Nest sold and decided, kind of on a whim, uh, and with you know a couple of months' notice. To brick, they just sent out uh, an email and put a posting up on their website that told all the people who owned these $300 devices, hey, sorry, we're just shutting all of these things off. And the outcry was massive and instantaneous. And it led the FTC to intervene and give all of those people refunds. And that's an isolated sort of success story. Um, course, the, the FTC has a lot more technological expertise and awareness than your average state or uh, even federal legislator. But you know, one of the things that we think is really important, and this is the, one of the main reasons I think that we, with, that we wrote this book, um, is we need to understand not just the isolated incidents when they happen, but we need to understand the entire kind of narrative that ties them together. How is the revolve? uh like the uh um you know the uh Keurig example or how is it like uh the right to repair examples how is it like amazon deleting uh ebooks of 1984 there's there's some threads that tie all these things together and i think to make the case in the most compelling way you've you've got to understand that through line and that's what we're trying to help people understand
0: yeah the other aspect that i think is going to Happen, and I think we 've seen this happen in other kinds of areas of technology, like with net neutrality and whatnot is you know you have the conversation you have the conversation for a while and then some kind of watershed crisis hits right some sort of big deal happens or or, um, you know, like, you know, Wikipedia goes dark because of the, you know, bad copyright legislation or something else. Right. So it may be that we are waiting for a watershed moment. And one of the things that we've seen recently, which may become a bigger issue we have to watch, is is the issue of information security right so one of the things that we've seen recently on the internet is these sort of bot networks that you know turned out to be like webcams for babies and like the watch on your wrist and all these little internet of things devices that were not very secure that hadn't had their software updated were all being sort of turned into zombies and used to attack websites and sort of shake people down for money and whatnot and we've seen more and more of these kind of things and when it is happening which is sort of this kind of dual story is on the one hand the manufacturers don't care enough or don't have enough money to really keep them updated so they let them kind of fall into disrepair from a security point of view so they're sort of just sitting there insecure on your computer and the you don't get any updates and then they're vulnerable on the other hand those same manufacturers will absolutely assert that you don't own that webcam or you don't own that fitbit or nest or whatever it is they still own it and you couldn't even open it up and do the updates yourself. So maybe one thing that might happen is there might be a kind of crisis in information security. And one of the underlying problems is that the companies keep insisting we don't own our stuff and can't actually secure our own devices. uh, And maybe we need a right to do that. So there might be opportunities like that, that just sort of shift the tide in some way. It's
2: the internet of hackable things we don't own, right? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Maybe we need to secure your own device act, you know, or be part of the, you own your device act, um, which gives you a right and no manufacturer can stop you from updating or fixing something that you bought for security purposes. And that would be at least an opening to start to kind of talk about all the things we can't do that go along with the with that right. problem. I
2: think uh, you we write about this in the book, but I think when it comes to physical devices, the fix is quite easy, at least in theory. It's you buy something, you own it, you own the software on it in terms of you can modify it if you want, as long as you're not, you know, probably... T- using it in your own device or, you know, making money off of it in some way. But when it comes to things like uh, an ebook or an MP3, how do you think we could make it so that digital ownership looks more like physical ownership of, of say, a CD?
1: So what we're lacking right now, I think, is a, a sort of mature or sophisticated understanding of personal intangible property. We know what it means to own a physical object, um, but we we haven't quite developed the capacity um, either technologically uh, or legally to make sense of the idea of owning an intangible asset as a consumer, not as a copyright holder, but as a consumer. So copyright law um, is written and has been interpreted in a way that focuses on individual copies of works because that's how copyright, uh, copyrighted works have been distributed through hardcover books and you know, CDs and DVDs, etc., But now that we've gotten rid or or uh, we are in the process of getting rid of those physical copies and moving to a kind of all digital distribution platform, the thing that ownership kind of vested in, the copy, is disappearing and we don't have a good replacement for it yet. Uh, So Redigi, the the company that I've mentioned a couple of times that that created this online marketplace for used Apple uh, iTunes files – tried to use technology to, as best it could, kind of replicate the structure of a, of a transaction over a physical copy. They, of course, made additional copies in that process. Those copies were temporary. But fundamentally, what they ensured was that just like if I sold you a used CD, one person starts out owning a copy and the other person doesn't. And at the end of the transaction, the other person owns the copy and the original person doesn't. Uh, that's the basic nature of the, the kinds of transactions that exhaustion is, uh, is trying to facilitate. Um, but we've, we've got to be willing to, to kind of decouple our notions of ownership and legal rights from the physical objects that they've kind of historically been embedded in. And it's going to take some work, I think, to convince courts and policymakers that that is um, a a goal that we can achieve.
0: Well, I guess the only other point that we try to make in the book, and this is mostly in the chapter about the promise and perils of digital libraries, but institutions like Libraries and schools, and to some degree, even local government and nonprofits rely heavily on this principle as well, right? I mean, libraries buy books and then. You know, loan them out to patrons all the time. And the rules are set by the library. They're not set by the publisher because the libraries own them. Same with schools, allowing kids to have textbooks, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that we haven't really accounted for is how these dramatic shifts are going to change that, right? If Amazon and Apple are dictated, you know, what our kids can read in school or what libraries, you know, can or can't loan out. Um, or, again, like, you know, what what we can write on and what we can, you know, utilize in science class uh, to calculate something. Uh, these are going to be fundamental changes in, like, how these institutions function and who they're indebted to. And I think we just need to be able to navigate these clearly and well and know the trade-offs. And sometimes it might make sense to have a subscription service, but a lot of times ownership might give the benefits we want, especially long-term benefits to communities. And uh, it's just important to know those trade-offs and for those institutions to be part of the conversation. All
2: right. Well, I think you guys have both done a really good job in helping to inform the public about this kind of scary trend that... You don't really own anything that you think you're buying or very few things that you think you're buying you own. So thank you guys so much for coming on. And the book is called The End of Ownership. It's out on MIT Press. Where can people follow you if they want to follow you on the internet?
1: Um, I'm on Twitter at A. Perzanowski, which is uh, easy to spell. Yeah, I think Twitter is probably
0: the easiest. I'm at Logeek Law L A W G E K.
2: Thanks so much for joining. This is Jason Kebler. Thank you to Aaron Persnowski and Jason Schultz. We are edited by Tim Barnes. Thank you so much. Bye.